I'm not a doctor. I'm a moron. And I'm a dirty stand-up comedian. The coverage of a certain problematic podcaster spills into a third week. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Whether Joe Rogan wants to admit it or not, he is considered by a tremendous number of people an expert, somebody who they can trust. The news cycle may have started with Rogan's COVID misinformation, but it's morphed into a debate about racism, or rather, who owns the right to be offended. To reduce this to this is white people virtue signaling about racism says that you feel like any complaints any black people bring up just simply don't exist. Meanwhile, in Russia, some actual cancellation of the past. The axe has fallen on an organization made famous for identifying the millions of victims of Stalin's purges. It's all coming up after this. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. So how do you solve a problem like Joe Rogan? The CEO of Spotify announced that it will be adding content advisory to any podcast that discusses the coronavirus. It comes as the company has faced calls to take action against COVID misinformation on the podcast hosted by Joe Rogan. Some musicians, including Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, are removing their music from Spotify. Here is what he said on his Spotify podcast. Yeah, I think for the most part, it's safe to get vaccinated. I do. I do. But if you're like 21 years old and you say to me, should I get vaccinated? I, I go, no. If you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well, I don't think you need to worry about this. This dust-up sums up so much of what's messed up in America today, including, obviously, the war between the right and the left. Everything is about that. Race and racism, that too. Fact versus fiction, what censorship is and isn't, and the role of unmediated digital platforms in all of this. So we're going to take a big chunk of this show this week to zero in. But before we get granular, flashback. I hope this wakes people up to the value of vaccines, too. There's so many wackos out there that think that vaccines are, you know, a scam or they're dangerous or it's there. There's so many people out there that won't vaccinate their children. I know. And that's one. You know, one of your best shows you ever did was Peter Hotels. Yes, He's a dear friend of mine. Guy. He's a I do, too. He's a dear friend of mine. This is Joe Rogan talking with epidemiologist Michael Osterholm two years ago. And, you know, he is one of the champions out there on this very issue. Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you for what you do say about vaccines, because people listen to you, and we need every positive voice, because we have so many crazy voices out there right now. So that many are people so are paranoid and yeah. d- d- delusional, and they want it all to be a conspiracy. There's been an amazing medical innovation in, in human culture, and that's vaccines. Maybe his thinking on vaccines has, you know, evolved since March 2020. Maybe he's just leaned into the contrarianism that has brought him fortune and fame. Or maybe, as he's oft noted, he just smokes a lot of weed. But it was his continued ralphing of COVID misinformation and conspiracy theories over the pandemic's course that prompted that open letter signed by 270 science and medical professionals last month calling for Rogan's platform, Spotify, to act with extreme prejudice. It was that letter that impelled Neil Young, then Joni Mitchell, and a parade of other musical talent to pull their stuff from Spotify. Among them, India Ari, who last 
last week posted a mashup of Rogan's repeated use of the N-word, plus other racially creepy remarks. And the Joe Rogan experience, long simmering, goes full-on culture war. So let's anatomize the arguments. First, is this really censorship? Arguing in favor, Fox News. What do you make of the attempts to censor Joe Rogan? It is yet the latest indicator about the real danger that we're facing as a society right now. The freedom of speech is being threatened. This is not a matter of censorship. Arguing against, Greg Benzinger of the New York Times editorial board. Censorship is saying you have no right to say anything anywhere. Spotify is potentially in the position to say the things that we're hearing and that this host is saying do not match our values. And no one has to host a host that they disagree with. Video platform Rumble does agree with Rogan and offered him a $100 million deal similar to Spotify's to lure him to their site with, quote, no censorship. Meanwhile, Spotify is holding Joe close, though it did delete more than 100 episodes from the service. The idea behind censorship is that you're not allowed to say certain things anywhere. Another distributor coming and saying, look, we're willing to offer you the same deal, come on our service and say whatever you want, you know, demonstrates that Rogan is not going to be censored. So, not censored. Criticized. Everyone says their piece. But most especially the greenbacks. Money talks, nobody walks. Not Rogan anyway. Not yet. And Spotify's position that it's merely a platform, not a publisher, and thus not responsible for limiting the content of Rogan's podcast? No, that argument is not right. Here's Peter Kafka, host of Recode Media. I think the only person who believes that, I think he does believe it to some degree, is Daniel Ek, the CEO of Spotify. And they have paid Joe Rogan an exclusive licensing fee to distribute the stuff. It's exactly the same thing as Netflix or ABC paying for something and then distributing it over the internet or on the air. Which makes Spotify a publisher of the Joe Rogan experience, different from other online services that he'd categorize as platforms. You can go to YouTube or Facebook or Twitter as a user and type or upload whatever you want, and it goes onto the service. That's one group of companies, and Spotify is not in that group of companies. More on that later. But what about the argument that Rogan's seemingly dangerous and racist statements have been cherry-picked and decontextualized? Absolutely not. This is Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost. His podcast is a revolving door of guests. Some of those guests sometimes are abhorrent white nationalists and bigots and conspiracy theorists seeking to recruit to their own and push abhorrent ideology. To those who accuse journalists like him of trying to de-platform Rogan without really listening to him in context, Campbell says, Well, I can tell you, I did listen to a lot of Joe Rogan. I'm an extremism reporter, and extremism reporting invariably brings you to the Joe Rogan experience because he has a lot of extremist guests on his show. Now, refuting the cherry-picking argument is trickier than the censorship or publisher points. While it's true Joe Rogan has hosted several white nationalists, Campbell notes that those guests are a very small part of the Rogan experience. I mean, there are plenty of straight-laced interviews that he has with interesting people, but when you do just a dive just below the surface, you are invariably going to come across some really harmful language and rhetoric. 
In the Sirocco of claims and counterclaims swirling around Rogan, there seems to be at least one point of agreement. Their guy and his 11 million listeners. It has 11 million listeners, that is. Every episode reaches about 11 million people. Four episodes a week to 11 million viewers. Joe Rogan has power because so many people listen to him. Podcast numbers are notoriously hard to pin down, so we decided to check. Amongst weekly podcast consumers, we estimate his audience to be slightly over 10 million per week. So if you throw in perhaps less frequent listeners, then yeah, 11 million is certainly plausible. Tom Webster is a senior VP at Edison Research, where they use consumer survey data to estimate listenership. It's both the number one podcast in terms of reach, and it's also fairly well ahead of number two. You could also call it the most listened to podcast in America. And you can see why. He's unpretentious, yet passionate, often ill-informed, but really sorry about it. He's just a dude who cares about dude things. Drugs and sex and hunting and muscles and big ideas. Entertaining his fellow or would-be dudes, while also sharing his favorite body-enhancing equipment and mind-blowing supplements. Thus, one prominent meme about the Joe Rogan experience is that it's essentially goop for men. Now, a lot of people, like the cantankerous journalist Glenn Greenwald just this week, say that only the corporate media could take a person like Rogan and claim he's a far-right figure. But that's just a straw man. He's not being hit for his eclectic politics, but for being a danger to public health and racially insensitive. And for God's sake, Glenn, a hundred million dollar deal with Spotify, but he's not corporate media? Give me a break. Coming up, but he's just a comedian. This is On The Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Given Rogan's wide reach, his podcast has served at times as a super spreader of COVID misinformation, even when he freely admits he's no expert. Like when he discussed using ivermectin as a treatment for COVID-19 after he claimed it helped his own recovery. Now, I do not know what the motivation for demonizing 
this particular medication is. Uh, again, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist. But I would imagine some of it has to do with money. The patent has run out. So anybody can make it. And it's worth like 30 cents a dose. Or when he hosted two physicians in December known to make false claims about the pandemic. Cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who has his own podcast criticizing the U.S. pandemic response, said vaccines were, quote, investigational research, and that those who have had COVID-19 basically develop permanent immunity. Virologist Robert Malone suggested that President Joe Biden faked his vaccine doses and hid the effectiveness of ivermectin. Peter McCullough claimed encouraging anyone to get vaccinated violates the Nuremberg Code. In a stand-up set, Rokin questioned whether it was his fault if people trusted vaccine information presented on his show, saying, if you want my advice, don't take my advice. But journalist, author, and attorney Jill Filipovich says that Rogan wants to have his cake and eat it too. It's one thing to explore complicated and kind of contested ideas, which is a lot of what Joe Rogan does. It's one thing to riff and joke around. You know, I think it's another to present people as health experts and medical experts and then allow those people to disseminate misinformation that threatens the public's health. Joe Rogan has one of the largest podcast audiences in the world, and Spotify, the company, has some obligation here, the same way that, let's say, NBC is publishing or presenting Oprah Winfrey's show, right? Mm -hmm. Spotify has had, in theory, a whole set of rules around using its platform to disseminate dangerous falsities that threaten public health. So that's part of the problem, is that Spotify sets itself out as a platform that is going to rein in misinformation and then doesn't actually follow through. Ashley Carmen, who writes Hot Pod News, finally managed to get Spotify's COVID-19 moderation guidelines, which were very, very hard to acquire. And apparently they are so broad, it would be hard for Rogan to violate them, she wrote. That according to the guidelines, for instance, you can say vaccines kill people, but not that they were designed to kill people. Yeah. You know, I, I understand the Spotify argument that they don't want to be combing through every single statement made by any podcaster on their platform, that they don't have the resources to do that. And that, you know, would be sort of an undue infringement on the right of creatives to share kind of whatever content they choose. A lot of this is a question of scale. Who is spreading the misinformation? How many people are they reaching? I think that's the reason why Rogan has become such a focus here, because he's not just a random podcaster, right? It's clear that medical professionals are seeing that it actually is influencing the public health, because whether Joe Rogan wants to admit it or not, he is considered by a tremendous number of people in the U.S. and abroad somebody who they can trust. And when Spotify makes a financial agreement with him to, on Spotify's part, financially benefit from that broad social trust and these claims of you know, expertise among the guests, then Spotify assumes a set of obligations that they're not meeting here. Rogan himself has said he shouldn't be taken seriously about COVID information. I'm not a doctor. I'm a f moron. And I'm a cage-fighting commentator who's a dirty stand-up comedian who just told you I'm drunk most of the time. <laughs> and I do testosterone and I smoke a lot of weed. But I'm not a respected source of information, even for me. 
If right. I say things, I'm always going, check on that, Jamie. I don't know if that's true. Right. I, I do that all the time. <laughs> right. But I at least try to be honest about what I'm saying. I mean, how can you not forgive a guy who's that authentic? <laughs> you know, what I hear in that clip is kind of wanting it both ways. Wanting to be taken seriously by his audience as someone who tells the truth, right? Which he's emphasizing. I ask Jamie to Google that for me. After he said it. Right, exactly. <laughs> but also if I get it wrong, I'm, I'm an idiot. So, you know, you, you can't rely on me for anything. And it's like, well, you kind of don't get to have both of those things. How would you compare him to mm -hmm. Jon Stewart having made the same claim 20 years ago on The Daily Show when he said, look, I'm just a comedian, don't rely on me for news. And yet he handled many news stories and he didn't make a lot of mistakes. I think Stewart is a good example of somebody who kind of walked this line perhaps a bit more artfully than Rogan. Stewart wasn't having people on his show telling outright lies. Sometimes he would have people on like Rick Santorum and maybe give him too soft an interview, but then he'd cop to it later and it was rare. Right. One thing that's getting lost in the Joe Rogan conversation is we also have to take into account the scale of the harm. Rick Santorum going on CNN and spinning a Republican talking point in a way that is not 100% honest, that's a problem. But it is not a problem on the same scale as something like pervasive COVID disinformation. This is literally a matter of life and death. The stakes are that high. It's pretty disingenuous when the Spotify CEO compared Rogan to well-paid rappers whose songs appear on Spotify. I mean, we know that music, I think you wrote this, that music is often fantastical. We don't really think that David Bowie is Major Tom floating in space. Right, <laughs> exactly. Audiences understand that artists and creatives play with the facts, including rappers that you know may boast about all sorts of you know, uh, mm -hmm. braggadocio behavior, which is par for the course for you know rock stars, for musicians since forever. We understand that a lot of that is is fantastical, is exaggerated, is not meant to be a careful rendering of the truth. I think that we do expect something different from people who play this kind of quasi-journalistic host role, mm -hmm. which I think is a, a fair way to characterize what Rogan does. How do you solve a problem like Joe Rogan? It's a good question. I would hope on an individual level that Rogan would take this moment for some self-reflection and consider how he selects those guests. Why over and over and over again? He seems drawn to the people that are not actually representative of the consensus among experts in their fields. From Spotify's perspective, I think what listeners want and need are clear and transparent rules. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand that Spotify does not want to kick off one of its most profitable podcast hosts. And removing him from the platform is not actually going to solve the misinformation problem. Rogan will move to a different platform. Probably a platform with far fewer restraints than what Spotify might impose. Exactly. Doing that, I think, then turns Joe Rogan into this kind of free speech martyr, where the people who already are a little bit prone to buying into conspiracy theories about COVID, for example, removing him, I think, plays right into that. It's like, look, again, here's all the things you can't say. Why do the people in power not want you to be saying this? There's no great way forward because I think anything that Spotify does 
reinforces those conspiracy theories. But I think certainly removing Rogan from the platform entirely would have that blowback effect. Whereas somebody from Spotify having a very straightforward conversation with Rogan about making sure that the experts on his show are actually representative of the scientific consensus, and then taking steps to remove any shows that do disseminate public health misinformation. Not a perfect solution, but I think that that checks more of the boxes that to me seem fair in terms of requiring truth and accuracy and also allowing Rogan pretty free reign to host his show as he sees fit. Jill, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Jill Filipovich is a journalist, author, and attorney. And finally, amid all the noise over Joe Rogan's less than salubrious COVID discussions, another party was heard from. The Grammy Award winning singer India Ari took to Instagram this week to explain why she too wanted her music pulled from Spotify. In her video, she posted a compilation of clips from Rogan over the years using the N word over and over and over. Spotify is built on the back of the music streaming. So they take this money that's built from streaming and they pay this guy $100 million, but they pay us 0.003% of a penny. Just take me off. I don't want to generate money that pays this. Ari was not the first person to raise concerns about the level of racial and racist language on the Joe Rogan experience, not by a long shot. But the tweets, articles, television coverage, and whataboutisms that followed made it clear the cynical adage that to be called racist is worse than racism itself is still alive and well. Although in this case, there was no calling Rogan anything, not by Ari at least, as the singer took time in later days to say she doesn't believe Joe Rogan the man is a racist, even though his words repeatedly have been. But drawing that line is a personal decision, precisely because it's fuzzy. At what point are actions indicative of beliefs? Gita Jackson is a staff writer at MotherboardAdvice.com, whose recent column is titled... The Joe Rogan controversy is all about Joe Rogan saying racist things. Gita, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. A lot of people say there's nothing to be outraged about. And I want to run through some of these defenses of Rogan, beginning with the assertion that his comments were taken out of context. He said that himself in his apology, though he concedes some moments look bad in context, too. Some of these things you wrote are worse in context. Some of them absolutely are worse in context. And it's not even like he got them all, you know. In the article I mentioned, the episode with Jordan Peterson, there is a bizarre aside that the two of them have where Jordan Peterson claims that one of his critics... Eric Dyson, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, he claims that this person's not black. And then Joe Rogan concurs. There's such a spectrum of shades of people, unless you're talking to someone who is like 100% African from the darkest place where they're not wearing any clothes all day and they've developed all that melanin to protect themselves from the sun. You know, it's, even the term black is weird. It's a, it's a, and when you use it for people that are literally my color, it becomes very strange. I don't know everybody in the world. 
but I don't meet people who think like this or vocalize these thoughts on a regular basis, I would say. It was news to me, that's for sure. <laughs> you also noted an interview he did, also cringeworthy, with a mm -hmm. mixed race, mixed martial artist. Someone with a black father and white mother. What are you yet? Uh, dad's black, mom's white. Standard issue, pretty much. Powerful, powerful combination genetic-wise, right? You get the body of the black man, and then you get the mind of the white man all right. together in some yeah. strange combination. That doesn't, by mixed. the way, mean that black people don't have brains. It's no. a different brain. When you come down to it, it's about someone who is at best, like, in his late 40s, early 50s in some cases, saying things that are so racially insensitive that they become laughable. He compared a movie theater in a West Philadelphia neighborhood, a majority black neighborhood, to the movie Planet of the Apes. It feels like a joke, like a comedy beat from a fiction show. <laughs> Many Joe Rogan supporters have pointed out that President Joe Biden has used the N-word before quoting something and using the word uncensored instead of saying the N-word. And pointed out that this is also insensitive. And it's true. It is. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the most popular entertainers on the planet. And he has been just offering up this kind of commentary without any challenge whatsoever for over a decade. It's wild. His use of the word is not always in quotes. It's not always about discussing issues of race. Often it is about making jokes. It's another mm -hmm. defense. He's just a comedian and these are just jokes. Well, I don't think it's a very effective form of joke making. And if it makes me laugh, it's for irony reasons rather than humor ones. You brought up the comedy defense. This is something that comedian Whitney Cummings offered. Well, Whitney Cummings also offered more than just a comedy defense, something I've heard from comedians for a very long time, which is just like comedy is the act of brave truth-telling. I don't think saying the N-word is brave truth-telling. So let's go to this other argument. Here we're going to play this tape of Dave Rubin of the Rubin Report on Rumble. Last week, this was all about Joe Rogan is spreading misinformation about COVID, right? That's what this was about. And look how quickly in just three, four days, how quickly the entire machine morphed to Joe Rogan has said the N-word. And it's like nobody really thinks Joe Rogan is spreading misinformation that's killing people. Certainly nobody thinks that Joe Rogan is a racist. Of course, he's not racist. Meanwhile, we have racist people that are teaching your kids. The entire Democratic Party has been infected by neo-racism. It's white people talking about white people. And that's all that it is. Well, in the meanwhile, what we are trying to have a conversation about is pretty distinct anti-black racism. I feel like it is infantilizing for white people to presume that it is only other white people who are upset by this and to speak over black people as if they are useful only as a rhetorical argument and not actual people with the experiences and opinions of themselves. There are plenty of black people, including artist India Ari, who are mm -hmm. very upset over his usage of the N-word. India Ari has since said that she does not think Rogan is a racist person, but is also looking for a change in behavior from him. And she personally, as much as she can, accepts his apology. And it's not necessarily on her to accept it for every member of the black community, but that is something that she is allowed to do. You know, I get on the phone with my father, and the first thing he says to me is, have you heard about this Joe Rogan stuff? It's deeply <laughs> concerning for a lot of people in the black community because of how popular he is. Mm -hmm. Things that he says casually or without thinking have a reach that is unfathomably large. 
So to reduce this to saying that this is white people virtue signaling about racism says essentially that you feel like any complaints any black people bring up just simply don't exist. You noted that the market cap for Spotify is $31 billion. They're giving $100 million to marginalized artists, quote unquote. You made the observation that this kind of suggests what their price tag is for buying people off. $100 million is equivalent to the amount of money they gave a singular podcaster, Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. The company also notoriously undervalues the work of artists on their platform, Black musicians making up a huge proportion of that. So they have a maximum of $100 million that they're going to give out to multiple marginalized, again, incredibly vague term. Essentially, you're saying that it takes many marginalized artists to equal up to the same value for Spotify as one Joe Rogan. And we spoke to Jill Filipovich earlier, who said that taking them off the platform rather than just forcing more moderation would be a mistake because then he'd end up with a place with no moderation, the same audience, and he'd be a martyr. It does reinforce something that members of conservative media say all the time, which is that there's no room for dissenting opinions amongst people on the left. If you question anything at all, they will, quote unquote, cancel you. It's not possible to cancel Joe Rogan, actually. People have followed him from platform to platform. Even if you are not a regular Joe Rogan listener, you may be the person who listens to only his MMA interviews or tuned in for when the presidential candidates end up on his show. He is now just a feature of our conversation landscape, as much a part of it as a Howard Stern figure is. You mentioned Howard Stern. Defenders of Rogan like Glenn Greenwald have used the whataboutism argument that mm -hmm. other racist comments don't get as much backlash. You also mentioned Joe Biden, that people who are fixating on Rogan are just trying to bring him down. It's very silly, right? When you put it that way, oh, yeah, black people don't mind when we use the N-word in this instance, but they do mind when we use the N-word in another instance. If you asked a black person at the bus stop, if they were okay with Howard Stern using blackface, they would probably tell you no, that they are not. <laughs> As a black person, if I got really, really angry at every single instance of racism that I see every day, every time I'm called a racial slur on the internet, every time I feel that I'd be treated racially insensitively in public, I mean, in high school, it really was just sort of a Russian roulette of whether or not I would hear white people say the N-word. I would be doing nothing except getting upset about racism. But it is okay to talk about one specific person's racist actions and racist words. It doesn't mean that by focusing on him, we don't care about any other instance of racism. We are simply trying to have a conversation about one guy. You can't talk about everybody all the time. It's not physically possible. It's just... <laughs> 
not physically possible. And yes, like some of the things that are endemic to this conversation of racist speech do have to do with the broader social project of creating generational change about our attitudes regarding race. But that has to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan is a public figure who now does have a responsibility to the things that he says into a live microphone. And again, when Greenwald says that people only care about these things when blah, 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 he is acting as if the only people who ever bring this up are white people. (laughs) A lot of this argument is white people talking to white people. There's no way to hear it otherwise, given the defenses that are made, including the defense that Rogan has given himself, that it's okay, he knows he's made a mistake, but he's an effing idiot, he says. I never use it to be racist because I'm not racist. But whenever you're in a situation where you have to say, I'm not racist, you f***ed up. And I clearly have f***ed up. And this is something that former New York mayoral candidate Andrew Yang offered as a defense of Rogan, that he works with black people all the time. He, he can't be racist. I think it's difficult sometimes for non-black people to understand that even if you are friends with black people or love black people or work with black people closely, that they have a culture and a community that you are not a part of. And they may not feel the same closeness to you that you feel to them. I've been in workplace situations for sure where my white colleagues have used me in a way that I felt like was a prop to absolve themselves of questions of racial insensitivity. Mm -hmm. It's like a really common experience for Black people in the professional world. It's also really possible to not actively or consciously be a bigoted person, but also hold bigoted beliefs or do things that are hurtful to people who are not your race. Things can still be racist, even if they're not intentionally so. And Andrew Yang has since apologized. You've noted that all the defenses we've just ticked off are distractions that divert us from engaging with the content of Rogan's remarks. All of these defenses ultimately serve to protect a white person's right, you wrote, to say the N-word. I grew up in a very liberal state on the East Coast and in school. You're not even going to name the state? Man, I grew up in freaking Connecticut. (laughs) You know, I grew up on a college campus. One of the few non-white people in my school, a private school, even in that ostensibly liberal school with ostensibly liberal people, we learned that the Civil War was fought for states' rights. Wow. But the question that was never answered in our classrooms was states' rights to do what? Yeah. Every time I see someone defending Joe Rogan when they say, that things were taken out of context or that he has apologized or that other people have done worse things. What I want to say to them is, tell me specifically what Joe Rogan said. Say the words. Listen to these conversations. Actually try to defend what he said. And it's not only stuff that he said 10 years ago. It's stuff that he said January 25th on the episode with Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. Can you say that it is defensible to say these things about black people? And if you do feel like it's defensible, 
then I feel like we have an entirely different issue going on that we should discuss. Mm -hmm. If you don't, I want to know why you're defending it. And it's not a free speech issue. Joe Rogan has been actively using his free speech to say the N-word this whole time. He can take his free speech to say the N-word to many platforms that would be incredibly happy to have him. But he has to deal with the consequences of his speech. Mm -hmm. There's no power that takes over a non-black person's vocal cords if they want to say the N-word. You can say it at any time. You could say it right now. But you have to deal with the consequences of saying it. Gita, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Gita Jackson is the staff writer at Motherboard, Vice's tech website, and author of the recent article, The Joe Rogan Controversy is All About Joe Rogan Saying Racist Things. It's always someone trying to take someone's power away. The history of the world is violent. Will it ever change? Now we're living in a time when you just can't hide. There's a camera in every hand. It's not elusive, even when they treat you like you're useless. We know what the truth is. Coming up in Russia, what's being censored is the past for real. This is On The Media. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. We learned this week that after months of wrangling with former President Trump's lawyers, the National Archives received 15 boxes containing legally protected documents. They included such treasures as Trump's correspondence with Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and the infamous map of Hurricane Dorian scribbled on with a sharpie, and at least one item of clothing. The Presidential Records Act requires that all documents created by the president be handed over to the archives at the end of their term. Why? Because archives are our collective memory banks that enable future generations to piece together a reliable accounting of history and, with luck, maybe learn from it. That's why the recent order to liquidate Memorial International in Russia, whose purpose has long been to amass and preserve the crimes against humanity committed in the Soviet Union, especially during the Stalin era, drew OTM producer Molly Schwartz to the digs of Russia's oldest human rights organization. It's late December in Moscow. I'm walking down Ulitsa Karetnirad, a wide street running north to south. Workers are up on the roofs of the buildings, shoveling off huge clumps of snow. When the snow hits the ground, it sounds like a series of small explosions. It's 5 p.m. on a Friday, but when I walk inside the headquarters of Memorial International, people are hard at work, prepping for a live stream event. Oh, uh, we can go upstairs? Nikita Lomakin is an archivist at Memorial, the oldest and most famous human rights organization in Russia. His family, like millions of others, was touched by the terror of the 1920s and 30s. My grandfather was arrested in 1938 and died soon after this. But that's not what drew him to these archives. I like the paper. I like the sound of paper. I like the sound of scanner. I like databases. And that's something which you like, like a good weather and so on. Memorial has documents about around 60,000 victims of Soviet repression. They also have an online database with information about over 3 million people. I had an idea what to show. Lomakin takes me back to the stacks and turns a wheel. 
revealing piles and piles of boxes. Each box represents a person, and each contains documents that open a window into a different time. I try to reconstruct the thoughts and feelings and circumstances and try to internalize it. These documents tell the story of life in the gulag, the brutal labor camps where hundreds of thousands of people were sent during Stalin's purges of the 1930s. When person gets arrested, person go to prison and after prison transported to camp. During transport, you are in the train and you have nothing to write on. So what people do? You can see. Lomakin shows me a cigarette rolling paper covered in tiny Russian script. People just wrote a small letter and put it outside the train. And somebody found it. And if there was an address or something which could be sent to the person in the Soviet Union, they'd do it. And this one is a letter on this cigarette rolling paper. And what was this person's name? It's Alexander Nagorny. He wanted to meet his wife while train passed, I think, Baku. But wife didn't come. He didn't know why, but in his letters he wrote that, I understand you did everything you could do for me. That's so sad, yeah, but sad sweet. Story, but yeah. this, story, this story helped to localize the place of <laughs> these documents. As I look at this tiny rolling paper, dropped out of a train as it passed by Baku, it seems like a miracle that letters like this survived, and even more of a miracle that it made its way into Memorial's archives. I would say that Memorial is a huge family archive because people donated copies of the documents which they gained from state archives, documents which were held in the families, like letters, drawings, and so on. Memorial's archives grew organically from donations like these. They came from people across Russia and former Soviet states and many from descendants of those who experienced the worst. A memorial was founded by grandsons and granddaughters, people who were grown up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, people who witnessed perestroika and to whom this identity was part of the new identity. As he showed me around the archive, all I could think about was how vulnerable each piece of paper was, and not because they're old pieces of paper, but because an ominous court date was hanging in the air. Now, one of Russia's most prominent human rights organizations is fighting for its survival. In 2016, Memorial was named a foreign agent by Russia's Ministry of Justice. The foreign agent law in Russia dates back to 2012. It allows the Russian government to label NGOs as foreign agents if they receive any amount of foreign funding. Prosecutors have used this foreign agent status to bring two suits against Memorial— for not properly marking things like social media posts or books at a book fair with text saying they were distributed by a foreign agent. On December 28, 2021, 11 days after my trip to the archives and 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, Memorial had its day in court. Inside Russia's Supreme Court, the verdict was swift. Today, Russia's highest court ordered the country's most prominent human rights organization closed. The axe has fallen on an organization made famous for identifying the millions of victims of Stalin's purges. The reason given is that the group, which has for five years now been designated a foreign agent, hasn't observed that law and declaring itself a foreign agent sufficiently. Memorial's supporters in the courtroom responded with shouts of shame. Officially, 
the reason given for the closure was Memorial's repeated violations of the foreign agent laws. But in court, Alexei Zhefyarov, a lawyer from the prosecutor general's office, said Memorial International's real crimes were of distorting the history of World War II. He asked, why should we, descendants of the victors, be ashamed and repent rather than take pride in our glorious past? Much reporting that came out around Memorial's closure suggested this was really a battle over history and who gets to control it. It supported the memory of those victims of Stalinist regime, of the whole Soviet time of the repressions, and it supported the memory of people who perished it, and it supported the idea that the state can be dangerous. Ivan Kurila is a professor of history at the European University at St. Petersburg. He specializes in 19th-century Russian-American relations, and he published a book this year called The Battle for the Past, How Politics Changes History. He says Memorial's version of history put it directly into the crosshairs of Russia's current president. Vladimir Putin, from the very beginning, started to use the past as a part of legitimation strategies for his regime. And he became acting president in late December of 1999. And in February of 2000, he flew down to Volgograd and went to Mamaev Hill. And that was a major point for the Second World War in Russia, you know, Stalingrad battle and Mamayev Hill was a huge memorial to the Stalingrad battle. So Putin started establishing his personal link to the major event of the Russian 20th century history. One of the first things Putin did as president was to switch up the national anthem. He sidelined the slow glinka tune of the Yeltsin years in favor of an old Soviet national anthem dressed up with some new lyrics. To be fair, the old anthem is pretty good. I mean, come on, this is rousing. If I were on an Olympic team, I'd want to march to that. And then the year 2014, annexation of Crimea and the deterioration of Russian relations with Ukraine and with the West. In the same year, 2014, the criminalization of the so-called rehabilitation of Nazism was introduced. Not a coincidence, I think. This law against rehabilitation of Nazism makes it a crime to spread, quote, false information about the Soviet Union's role in World War II, and also included disrespect to the holidays of the military victories. It was under this law that sales of the book Mouse were banned in 2015. And then in 2020, a clause was added to the Russian Constitution, which gives the state the power to defend the, quote, historical truth. It can be used to shut up the narrative which teach people that the state can kill people. That was one of the major discoveries for the public in the Perestroika era, that the Soviet state did kill hundreds of thousands of people. One of Memorial's activities that first got it into trouble was its education program. Memorial, for many years, organized competition for high school students. They encouraged students to write the history of their families. It was not always about repression. It was just about the 20th century personal history. But several years ago, the state tried to stop it. And that is very telling because the family history is the last refuge of the alternative narrative because people know that their grandfathers or granduncles were arrested or had very difficult lives during the Soviet time. And that competition helped to keep this narrative which is different from the official school books. And then there were the things that Memorial did in present-day Russia to the chagrin of certain parties in power. Once a year, reading aloud all the names of the people who were shot in the Great Terror of 1937 to 1938, 
putting plaques on apartment buildings to show that residents living there were killed by Stalin. Karila told me that Memorial's experience in Russia holds some lessons for Americans seeking to expand our perspective on our own history. For example, he praised how the authors of the New York Times 1619 project challenged how the history of slavery is told, but added a note of caution. What will be bad from my point of view is if the project of 1619 will say this is the only history which happened to the United States. You should understand that the American founding fathers were not only slave owners, but they still brought something important to this world. And if you get rid of these important ideas, it would be not a good development. And the Russian case is exactly about that. If you get rid of the memorial, it will be bad for the Russian future. But if you say that victimhood was the whole story of the Russian nation, it will be not good as well. Learn to live with the multiple versions of our national history. If that's even possible, especially when it comes to our history of slavery and all that followed from it. The battles over so-called critical race theory are a case in point. But Karila suggests Russians may be even more serious about their history. History is important for Russia for several reasons. First reason, because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there is no more ideals to build. To, And the second was the very tragic history of the 20th century, which included millions of people dead in the Second World War. This is something which usually underestimated in the United States. But 27 million Soviet people, the vast majority of them from Russia, but not only Russians, of course, died in the Second World War. And up to 1 million died from the state repressions. Every family had somebody perished in the war or in Gulag or both. And that is something which is still alive. As I write this, Russia is massing troops along the border of Ukraine. And Putin continues to assert that, historically, the two countries are, quote, one people. Karila says this is why history shouldn't be used for political purposes. Because some of the narrative will call for arms to fight neighbors. So my big hope is the historian that politicians will stop doing that. On January 31st, Memorial filed to appeal the court's decision. The Supreme Court will consider the appeal on February 28th. For now, the future of the archives is murky. Nikita Lomakin. We will try to find another organization to continue our work. So we don't need to rush. We don't need to do something stupid like you do when you're in panic. But of course, uh, we are in panic. <laughs> Lomakin says it's no secret that Memorial is a liberal organization with dissident roots. But the archives have taught him that personal stories don't fit inside ideological models. And that's not what the people want or need. It's more about the family story. It's more about the story of the country. It's not about human rights. It's not about even maybe not about rehabilitation. Stories are appealing because amid the chaos of life, they're neat. Beginning, middle, end. Ivan Karila would say our biggest mistake is thinking of history that way. Rarely do people or nations follow grand historical narratives. They're random, contingent, contradictory. Which is why, when composing it, the more voices we get to hear from, the better. And the more politics stays out of it, the better still. For On the Media, I'm Molly Schwartz. And that's the show. 
On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Rebecca Clark Callender, and Max Balton, with help from Aki Camargo. Zandra Ellen writes our newsletter. Our show is edited by me and Katya. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Adrian Lilly and Andrew Nerviano. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. <laughs>